Mumbrella's CobbsCon conference is returning on May 19, 2022, with a day of full content dedicated to the Australian communications industry. Held at the Four Seasons Hotel Sydney, this is your opportunity to dissect and discuss the pertinent issues on the local and international scene. Hear from Australia's executives and influential leaders on the big topics and gain insight on cutting-edge strategies. It's a day to network with your comms professional peers and keep your finger on the pulse of a rapidly evolving market. With a tumultuous year behind and the great unknown beyond, this is a day you cannot afford to miss. Purchase your early bird tickets now and save $100 for a limited time only. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash commscon to redeem your savings. Hello again, you're listening to the Mumbrella Cast. We are back. Thank you for joining us. I'm Damien Francis and on the desk today for the third last time in 2021, breaking down Australia's media and marketing industry news, Mumbrella senior journalist Emma Shepard. Hello. Reporter Anna McDonald. Bonjour. Wow. Fancy. Mix it up. <laughs> very, very. And my broadcast producer and Melbourne editor-in-chief and lead reporter for Victoria, Callum Jaspin, MBE. Hello. Thanks, Damo. Anytime, anytime. I only speak facts. Later in the episode, I'll be talking to Nick Smith, Group Content Director at Medium Rare Content Agency. After his return to Australia, having held the position of Group CEO of fashion and lifestyle publisher Bureau Global, based in London. Prior to his time at Bureau, he was the Prestige and Lifestyle Director at News Corp Australia and also formerly the editor of GQ Australia. In the conversation, we'll touch on the reasons why he left a CEO role to return to Australia. And I, look, I just admired the way they work. Um, we all just became a bit of a family. So it was a nice, not like I was parachuted back in, but it was actually, it actually just happened out of the blue. The challenges of running a publishing business across multiple markets. We were really, we really took that sort of strategy of going into emerging luxury markets where now you'll see actually Condé Nast have started to open up and go into those smaller ones. So we actually sort of created a footprint, I think about 12 million across the globe. And becoming an employee of a business he was previously on the board of. I know, it's, I was on the board of Medium Rare and now I'm actually working for Medium Rare. I don't it's know. It's to go the other way around. <laughs> Yeah, it's just dawned on me. Thanks so much for that. But before we let Nick Smith loose on the podcast, the news topics for today, please, Callum, Mr. Melbourne Bureau Chief. So first up today, we're going to look at the Oztam TV figures for the year with 9 and 7 duking it out in a fight for the most prominent TV network in Australia. And secondly, we have the federal government's new bill targeting anonymous online trolls and strengthening defamation laws with a draft legislation dropping yesterday. On Monday morning, my brother reported that Seven had reclaimed the title of Australia's number one television network after being beaten out by Nine for two successive years, taking the highest audience share as well as the best growth of any network. According to Oztam data, Seven finished the 2021 ratings year with a 38.6% share of the commercial audience, ahead of Nine on 37.8% and 10 on 23.6% with this year not including the Easter holidays and the Olympic Games in its counting. Seven's CEO, James Warburton, said it was great to be back at number one, but Nine were quick to point out that it wasn't ready to just lie down, with Nine's chief sales officer, Michael Stevenson, saying that Nine is number one again in the thing that matters most, the demographics that advertisers buy. Nine ranked number one for people 25 to 54, 16 to 39, and grocery shopper and child. Its primary channel was also number one with all key demographics, as well as the total people across the rating survey period. Seven and nine have each claimed significant wins and are forecasting big years ahead, another Olympic year, no less. We covered the general statements from all of the networks, but aside from throwing down on who won what, uh, what else did they have to say about the relevance of the figures recorded, Em? Yeah, it was definitely a fight between Seven and Nine. Um, So congrats to Seven for actually winning the TV year. However, Nine was definitely vocal about, you know, being the number one in all key demos in both network and primary channel. Nine and Ten made it clear they're not really interested in total people figures and a lot more laser focused on key demos. 
Uh, Nine also said they were really surprised by some shows such as Love Island doing really well across both TV and digital and said it was all about the total TV performance. Um, You know, Nine also brought up with me media buyers want shows that kind of perform consistently throughout the year, which is also why I think they're focusing so much on their key demos as, you know, their strategy. Um, And saying that, I think um, since Warburton has come back to seven, he's definitely shifted his focus, not just on total people, but also keeping an eye on those key demos as well. Um, And if this continues, I feel like seven definitely have a strong, you know, TV year in 2022. Tens Prosser said in an interview with Cal that uh, the network is really focusing on under 50s as a demo. However, 10 only had a 28.8% share in under 50s. Um, What was also interesting to see uh, was the figures next year uh, with BVOD and SVOD on the rise as well. Um, Stephen said said that there was definitely a real growth in live streaming. He also mentioned that the Nine Now app is growing at over 50% and growing at double rate of the on-demand growth too. And that was, of course, uh, TENS sales director, Rod Prosser, you were mentioning just then, M. Uh, none of this really means anything unless the networks are, are attracting buyers and money and investment, of course, and there's a reason why they're all throwing down and suggesting that they're number one in some way, shape or form. Cal, you spoke to a, a number of media owners. Uh, are they buying the the PR, if you will, from from seven on on total audience, from nine on the various demographics? From I think this might be the first time ten hasn't necessarily claimed a win, but obviously suggesting they've got some pretty strong demographics there. What was the the industry sentiment from the buyers? So I'll just um, run straight over that that pun that you said there about them buying the PR, um, which you didn't, you didn't even seem to acknowledge yourself. Um, I, yeah, I, I did a bit of a rounds uh, with uh, a couple of buyers. I spoke to Janice Morgan from Magna, Nicola Barnes from iProspect, Steph O'Donnell from Cara Melbourne and Bryce Cameron from PhD Australian, all group investment directors for their um, respective agencies. I think the general sentiment was that seven taking the year was actually a little bit of a surprise. Um, also, the, a kind of general sentiment, and not 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 so much a sentiment, but an acknowledgement that seven started the year off not too quickly. So there definitely was a bit of a recovery in that second half of the year. And even Warburton um, said that as well that they they had a slow start to the year. Yeah, mm. and 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 you know with um, Q one programming such as Holy Moly and Ultimate Tag. Um, uh, Morgan from Magnus saying not really living up to expectations. It wasn't really until the Olympics, which um, kind of provided linear and streaming audiences that that really kind of got things going. And of course, you know, those Olympics weren't, um, as we mentioned before, included in the total streaming numbers. But it was um, it was of, of sorts a kind of platform to kind of uh, leap off from if 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 you will you know they they really timed things up well with SAS and the voice coming off the back of that with um I think it being referred to as a sort of halo effect uh, again Morgan from Magna said that the, the the unfortunate and unavoidable delay of the Australian Open at the start of the year on nine um, and subsequent pushback of uh, Married at First Sight, which is one of Nine's kind of ten-pole programming, um, might have actually cost Nine pole position in total people. But unsurprisingly, Nine will be looking to focus on uh, the demographic figures. Barnes from iProspect suggested that it's maybe start time to start measuring the network's performance in a total viewing perspective across linear consolidated data and BVOD to give a true view on network performance. And of course, now we're kind of looking at those um, those VOS figures, but maybe maybe a move away from the actual um, the TV rating figures um, might be due at this point. In terms of uh, ten. Barnes, again, from iProspect was saying that there's no denying that 10 struggled this year, uh, although on the, off the back of a, a strong uplift in 2020, they didn't actually manage to retain strong audiences. Despite that, they still managed to hold their year-on-year audience quite well against the core demos, which is, you know, as we spoke about there, 10 like to focus on being the under-50s network. 
Cameron from PhD Australia did say that 10 had consistent programming throughout the year, which proved uh, to provide incremental audiences, which actually, you know, can differentiate themselves in the market. I kind of see where nine are coming from, though, in terms of really pushing the demographic wins, because realistically speaking, marketers are not necessarily buying. Well, they're not they're not buying space on your network because you just happen to be number one across all audiences for the entire year. They want specific audiences. Did the numbers that we were seeing from the people you spoke to, Cal, did they change the views of, of any of those people necessarily in terms of where they're looking to invest next year or, or was it pretty much we knew this was going to happen anyway? You know, again, saying that the, the keeping in mind that the voice coming after the Olympics was um, what was referred to as the smartest play of the year, um, it, it was kind of the view also that focusing on the key demos, which is where the bulk of advertiser investment does lie with with shows like The Block, Lego Masters, having the NRL, Love Island, etc. on that kind of multi-platform um, approach does have a specific demographic appeal and also creates opportunities for advertisers to align their brands specifically in those environments. So I think that is, as you say, kind of where where the real where the real money is, I guess. And then going into 2022, I think um, with this year sport having been a big a big plus for seven in that middle of the year, it's kind of um, being seen as that will be a big decider at the start of the year. So. Going into January, the Australian Open is going to be returning, um, and I, we we can assume that Nine's going to use that to kind of kickstart a strong start to the year. And then you've got the the Ashes on seven, and the Winter Olympics, no less. Yeah. So, uh, and, and then of course, yeah, you've got the Winter Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, and then the World Cup at the end of the year on SBS, which will be um, one to look out for. The, the The sentiment is that that. It's looking like seven can really kind of keep keep hold of things and have a strong year next year. You know, with as I mentioned, the Ashes, with the Voice Generations, a new kind of uh, a new format there. Um, so the prediction is that they will get off to a strong start, and there is a hope that they can kind of keep up a battle with Maps as it continues to um, perform. But you know, on ten, there's also stuff to look forward to. You've got. The A League kind of kicking off and kind of growing a bit of an audience. The Grand Prix returning, as we as you'd probably hope, Demo. It's going to go ahead, and then a new MasterChef um, format coming in as well. Yeah, I'm happy that's going to go ahead. I'm sure it will, but uh, I'm not happy that we don't have it on free to air TV. Still, it'd be lovely if uh, Ten could have that rather than having to do uh the subscription to see it. But nonetheless, uh, we'll move straight on to that because it's not about me, Cal. It's about the audience. It's about That's the not bias. what you say when we go off this podcast, Damo. That's very true. Moving straight <laughs> on. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the federal government and the moves it's making on social media giants. The federal government announced on Sunday that it would be introducing a bill to target anonymous online trolls and strengthen defamation laws in Australia. It would reverse the High Court of Australia's ruling from the Vola case that news outlets are liable for the comments made on their social media pages as they are the publishers. The Attorney General, Michaelia Cash, said that, quote, the reforms will make clear that in defamation law, Australians who operate or maintain a social media page are not publishers of comments made by others, end quote. The proposed laws would put the onus back on the social media platforms and would require them to collect more information about their users, although it would still be possible for users to be anonymous on the front end of the platforms. Anna, the exposure draft of the bill was released yesterday evening. That was Wednesday evening. Feedback will now be collected and the government insists that it would like to introduce the bill to Parliament early next year. Any new information coming out of that draft? Yes, is the short answer. The long answer is when it was announced on Sunday, there are a lot of sort of unknowns, a um, lot of unknowns with the bill because obviously we haven't actually seen a draft of the bill. So the things that the, um, that the draft legislation makes clear is, first of all, you're correct. The social, very clearly it states in the bill that social media pages, um, the comments underneath social media pages, the 
people that own the social media page, they will no longer be liable under defamation, uh, no longer considered publishers, pardon, um, of those defamatory comments. And the main part of the bill, though, as well, it provides social um, social media platforms are then the publishers of defamatory comments with a bunch of conditions. It establishes a defense for the uh, social media platforms if they are found to be publishers of defamatory comments. One being the page owner must be Australian, so the actual social media page has to be Australian. Another being the comment, the alleged defamatory comment, has to be made in Australia, and the onus to prove that is on the defendant, so it's on... VPN. Anyway, go on. Well, that's the thing. It's um, prior to the legislation being announced, Anthony Albanese came out and said, how will it be proven that these comments are being made in Australia? Everyone has access to VPNs. It's a global company operating in a domestic sphere. Um, it, one of it, That's one of the issues with the bill. Um, the second thing, in order to get this defense, the all social media pa- platforms um, have to have a complaint scheme compliant with the legislation. And, and also in order to get to get it, this is a bit of a long one, apologies. So the applicant, so the person who the defamatory comment has been made against, so the applicant either has to have not requested the information through the complaint scheme or court or order, or have requested the com- through the complaint scheme, the inf- this is the information for the anonymous person, have requested the, inf- uh, the information through the complaint scheme and the platform has given it, or the applicant has gone to the courts in order to get an end unit user information disclosure order. So in order to get the defense against publishing defamatory comments, that's what social media platforms have to do. The complaint scheme itself, which I just mentioned, um, there's a bunch of things. It's, it's applicable to social media services with at least 250,000 Australian users or a service that is specified. Um, there's a bunch of rules about how, what they have to disclose. Importantly, the platform has to respond within 72 hours and it also remo- removes liability for the disclosure of country location data and disclosure of contact details. Um, and also there are fines if they don't comply. It's f- if the social media provider doesn't uh, comply, it's $550,000 if they don't comply, with $27,750 for every day they refuse to okay, so I'm, I'm just that's, gonna, a, that's a lot of I'm just going to jump in there because, yeah, you're right. It's a lot of information. I think a lot of people, uh, even reading some of the news articles that have come out about this yeah. uh, would have been quite confused quite early on. Uh, there are still a lot of questions up in the air about this in yes. terms of uh, it's still possible, it would still be possible to make a fake profile. Uh, you can put in a fake mobile number and that's what a lot of this was uh, hinging on is that you'd, you'd have to provide name, address, phone number, even if you your username didn't uh, point to who you were. Anyone can bash in a, a fake mobile number or something like that. Um, quite easy to do. Uh, also, though, the onus then being on the social platforms, they're not going to necessarily just say, yeah, that, that, that's a great idea. We're going to suck that one up. Anna, was there any comment from any of the, the platforms at this early stage? Not yet. TikTok has declined to comment. I have reached out to a few of the other ones, but they've not yet uh, gotten back to me. But so far... Nothing from them on the bill. Um, the uh, in the Guardian, Professor David Rolf, um, who's a defamation expert at the University of Sydney, he said that the pers- the people that benefit the most from this bill are publishers. So it's good news for publish for media outlets. Pardon. Um, good news for the for media publications, media organisations. Not too sure how the social media platforms are going to respond. Well, look, I guess we already know that Facebook isn't shy necessarily of pulling out of a country, particularly Australia. They've got uh, they've got history there. Mm-hmm. Like so, I still struggle with this one in terms of I'm not necessarily sure that it fixes a lot of issues in terms of what we've seen so far or the, the challenges, which is, like we've said, VPN, you can get around the, the comment looking like it's been made in Australia. You can still provide false details if you really want to. No one's really talked too much about bots. If I'm not mistaken, ScoMo started saying a few things about bots uh, here and there, but it, it, we know that a lot of 
those defamatory comments, those negative comments, those trolling uh, comments are are made by bots these days. Um, so that's something that's still a, a, a big issue that they have to deal with. Um, and again, here, you know, we, we talked about this with some of the other uh, C initiatives, the, the Digital Advertising Services Inquiry, for example. Uh, there's a long time frame here between actually coming up with uh, with the, the draft and then having a chat about it and then trying to bring it into parliament uh, and, and get it going. So uh, it seems like we're still at the very start of, of the situation. Um, uh, did you manage to speak to any publishers uh, at all, Anna? This, you know, obviously they're going to say, hey, look, you know, we don't really want to be liable for this, but you would assume um, that they'll do everything they possibly can now to actually push it through as fast as they possibly can. I would think, um, no, I have not spoken to any publishers, um, but what I, from what I've seen online when the announcement was made on Sunday, I think they're all pretty happy with it. Obviously, it's a bonus for um, media outlets because they don't have to then put the resources into moderating their comment section. It's one less thing that they have to worry about. I would be hesitant to say they'll be trying to push it through because I think to get involved between the government and big tech, I would think they would want to stay out of that one. <laughs> it's not exactly an easy space to operate on. Lots of sort of powerful entities playing off of each other. I think it's probably time we jumped off the anonymous topics and into the next topic for the Mumbrella cast because coming up next, I'll be speaking to Medium Rare's Nick Smith. So it's a pleasure to have Medium Rare Content Agency Group Content Director Nick Smith with me for the Umbrella Cast. Nick, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me. No problem. Good to see you again after all these years. A- absolutely. And so a, a bit of uh, background, I guess, for, for the audience. Uh, Nick, as the editor and then uh, beyond at, at GQI, I was reporting into you as <laughs> such as the uh, consultant uh, Writer for yes. technology. You helped me out with all the stuff that I had no idea about. <laughs> I could write about shoes and ties, but actually to talk tech, I needed you. So you were very valuable at that time. Oh, so I appreciate, I appreciate your work. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to write about shoes and ties <laughs> at that stage, so I, I was looking to you to, to see what I needed to know about that. My fashion sense back then wasn't oh, very good. I, I don't let that information out. I don't really you know, pass on the knowledge. No, that, that's fair. That's why you got to where you got to. That's very fair. Um, Nick, let me start with your, your current role. Announced in February this year that you'd be coming back to Australia, joining Medium Rare Content Agency. A little bit of a homecoming in the sense yeah. that back kind of in the News Corp family yes. and at a business where you were on the board previously yeah. uh, as well. What made you come yeah. back to Australia? I know, it's, I was on the board of Medium Rare and now I'm actually working for Medium Rare. I don't <laughs> so know. It's to go the other way around. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> I don't, yeah, that's just dawned on me. Thanks so much for that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, look, um, obviously, you know, I had worked over overseas for the last couple of years running sort of Bureau Global, which was like a luxury millennial digital-only um, platform, which is in 12 countries, which is quite interesting. Obviously, like a lot of... Um, Aussie expats, the pandemic brought me home. Um, and look, but I will, I will always stay in touch with Sally and Jerry, who've done a phenomenal job um, growing medium rare. Um, so they'd always sort of, uh, you know, kept uh, the lines of communication open that if I did ever want to come home, there would be a place here. Um, and look, at, you know, hats off to them. I think, you know, in the early days, I think my role was when it was just Sally and Jerry and I think maybe the Coles Magazine team, like I would help them go and pitch to new clients. So I think um, we sort of collaboratively worked on the David Jones content business, which started as like, I guess, a loyalty magazine and then uh, Qantas. Um, and I look, I just admired the way they work. Um, we almost became a bit of a family. So it was a nice, not like I was parachuted back in, but it was actually, it actually just happened out of the blue. Um, Paulette, who um, works in our creative, a rare creative uh, agency within within the agency, we met at F forty five, and she sort of said, "Do they know you're back?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm trying to keep under the radar while I'm back in Australia." But then the next week, I was 
um, in having lunch with Jerry and Sally and the, I guess here I am. Yeah, great. Uh, look, I'll, I'll circle back around to the work you're doing at yeah. Medium Rare. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you were in Europe uh, for yeah. three, almost three years, yeah. so I, I exactly. think it was, yeah. at Bureau, uh, Bureau Global yeah. as the group CEO. Yeah. Kind of a rare thing to see uh, an editorial-based yeah. person in a C-suite mm. position. Mm. And I guess the interesting thing for me watching that was that mm. – you didn't come from a large market doing something smaller and then into a, a CEO position in yeah. a smaller market. You kind yeah. of went the other way around. Yeah. CEO position in a very large market. Mm. How did that all mm. come about? Well, so obviously um, within, I guess, the prestige division at News, and um, uh, we had launched Bureau uh, locally at that time. Um, it's moved out of the portfolio since. Uh, but I think probably our launch here, and I guess growing up, you know, the news way of doing things properly when you take them to market, I think was the most successful bureau launch within uh, the network. And there was about, I think, nine bureaus around the world. So Singapore, Russia, uh, Eastern Europe, um, Mexico, uh, you name it. Uh, so I think we were probably one of the most successful launches where we very quickly established the positioning of Bureau. I'm not sure Bureau had sort of done that so successfully around the world that, you know, really focusing on, I guess, uh, the youth market, um, the growing trend of millennials and um, Gen Z to really get into luxury and also the luxuries following them. Um, so I think that probably impressed uh, the owners of Bureau, um, they were obviously going through a, a process of uh, trying to, I guess, move into more Western countries. So luckily I had a dual passport. And so they asked me to, to move the headquarters um, to the UK. So that was just, a, uh, you know, it was a bit of a, a risky thing to do because obviously I hadn't worked in that market. Like they could have been gone to someone at Condé Nast and set that up, but they chose me. So um, it was really... Oh, look, an amazing experience in, in terms of that step up, you know, at News Corp I've been given amazing um, opportunities to lead a big team and, you know, there's a lot of support there. So this was almost going from a big corporation to a smaller, more nimble one. So it was almost going to a startup. So, you know, anything from finding a space in London to rent, setting up all the back end, uh, Wi-Fi, IT operations and hiring the team from scratch. Amazing experience, tough ads. Um, so I think in that time, we sort of had rebuilt the, the Bureau platform. We rebranded, so we made it more appealing to luxuries and I guess, a, you know, to a, a spread to the more Western countries in line with, I guess, when you saw Burberry sort of do their big rebrand or Balenciaga with sort of was nice timing. So it was all a really great fit. Um, so yeah, we launched in the UK and then I launched in other smaller markets which were emerging, emerging in terms of luxury. So um, Serbia, and we were really we really took that sort of strategy of going into emerging luxury markets where now you'll see actually Condé Nast have started to open up and go into those smaller ones. So we actually sort of created a footprint, I think about 12 million across the globe. You, you did quite a bit when you were there, like you said, you, you, you looked at other markets, you, you yeah. opened, you, you yeah. moved the HQ to, yeah. to Soho in, yeah. in London, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you hired some very key people uh, as well. Mm. Uh, how did you find that shift from working in, in, in a similar industry yeah. in Australia, yeah. Yeah. but then to a much bigger market and actually yeah. running the entire operation yeah. itself? Look, it was a challenge, and I say it was really tough. And look, I think I grew up as well. I think, you know, I, can, I think I probably had the best job in publishing in Australia, like looking after GQ Vogue, Vogue Living, and, you know, amazing brands such as Body and Soul and launching Stella, plus having the support of News Corp behind, but then sort of taking that away and, you know, taking on, I guess, a challenger brand. So, you know, obviously luxury brands in the UK particularly are well-established. So Vogue is Vogue. Yep. Harper's is Harper's, L is L. So, you know, really what I had to sort of do is, um, I guess, really, really position Bureau almost niche within that market to be able to get success. And I think I also had the backing of the founders to say, listen, if we're going to do this, we have to do it right. So I was able to bring on, I guess, a commercial director um, who had worked at Hearst and Condé Nast and also Endemol Shine. Um, I guess our licensing manager had come from Condé Nast. Um, so, yeah, I kept that real opportunity. And look, I was an unknown too. So I almost had to sell these amazing talent 
my vision for the brand um, to get them on board. Um, we'd had, you know, our digital director had worked at Amazon and, you know, they took a risk on me. So, you know, you, when you move into that position, it's like, actually, God, I've actually got, you know, even though it was a small headquarters at about 10 or 11, like you've got, oh my gosh, I've got all these talented people who come work for me. So there's that anxiety and that pressure of thinking, gosh, this has got to work, right? Um, and we had a lot of fun doing it. Though I must admit, like it was just incredible. Stressful ads because we put timelines about, you know, when are we going to launch in the UK? We wanted to have, you know, certain openings. So I was going over to talk to publishers in, say, Paris or Italy to, um, you know, to start spreading the Bureau brand. But that was sort of three years in. And then the pandemic came and no one wanted to launch after that. So it was like, well, I've set up the structure. Um, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in good hands and we've done the rebrand. So it was like, you know, it might be time to come home. I was going to ask you about that, how the pandemic then shifted yeah. your focus yeah. and, and the business outlook, you know, yeah. things in yeah. Australia anyway, sort of shut down quite quickly and then came back to life yeah. equally quickly almost. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find it in Europe, particularly England, very different situation? A very different situation. And obviously, uh, you know, we we're almost a startup. Like we weren't part of a bigger organization like a News Corp or a Condé Nast where they could probably, you know, let us go into, I guess, a cash flow deficit. Like we were looking at cash flow daily, right? And so obviously running the headquarters that was reliant on um, that luxury advertising coming in, particularly from the UK market, which um, to be honest, I don't think, you know, many, a lot of sort of digital only premium luxury brands had tried in the UK. Um, but it failed because they'd gone to that approach of, okay, we have to do $100,000 fashion shoots and make it look like, you know, a magazine, but in digital. So we kind of worked out a way with sort of 3D animators and moving image and a dynamic platform that we could do that more effectively. So the business model was good that we could do luxury at speed and on digital, but we rely on advertisers. So we launched with Chanel, Dior, you name it, but as soon as the pandemic hit, right, in the UK, luxury is still very much um, bricks and mortar. So if the stores aren't open, they're not advertising. And obviously, you know, the first, the last one in, so bureaus and new launch, you know, in those kind of times, you know, um, I guess rightly so, media agencies and clients go back to the brands that they know, right? So we were trying to say, hey, yes, you still got to advertise with Vogue because it gives you reach, but, you know, we are really engaged with the millennial audience and have different content too. So we were sort of saying, yeah, use us as an accompaniment, but in, in tough times, you kind of go understand that that, that last one you use the first last one. Off, yeah. 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 First off the, off the media, media schedule. Sure. Um, now, in terms of the differences between the, the markets at yeah. Australia versus yeah. Europe, I guess, yeah. uh, in terms of yeah. luxury and prestige brands, mm -hmm. Were there big differences that you noticed in terms of how they marketed, what they did, yeah. their consumer sets? What did you sort of yeah. take away from that? I mean, listen, um, having experienced luxury over the last 10 years in Australia, like it's a booming, it's booming and it still is now, right? So I think when sort of I was running the luxury um, network, sorry, the prestige network at News Corp, you know, you'd speak to the CEOs of the luxury brands and they'd all be coming down here, right? And they'd say, you know, the luxury lights are on in Australia. They were booming, obviously, because we had uh, a large, um, I guess, China, uh, Chinese tourist um, market here. But also Australians became more adapted in investing in luxury themselves. So it was a win-win. So previously where I think probably, you know, luxury brands re relied heavily on the tourist dollar, they they'd increase, I guess, their base revenue from um, you know Aussies getting into luxury, so it was just booming. A uh, little bit different, like the UK, it's really fragmented. Like you can't sort of say hey, there's a strong UK luxury shopper because it's so multicultural and also so um, transient. So in summer, you get a whole cohort from the Middle East over. And then it's a, you know, and then the, the, it's the other shoppers from, say, Asia, et cetera. So really hard to define the demographic there. And I guess that's probably, again, why we honed in on that youth market because, you know, luxury sneakers were going through the roof and, you know, uh, creative directors like Virgil Abloh were um, joining Louis Vuitton. So it was that time where, you know, I guess Bureau represented that youth um, 
that youth market. So that's why we were able to get the brands in, even though they were struggling probably with their own demographics in store because they couldn't really tell from one week to the next who was going to visit, um, say, Burberry in, um, in Shoreditch or Burberry in the high end of, um, of um, London. Obviously, you know, the proximity to the head offices was the big thing between here and Australia. And I think, um, you know, I think if we ever have a pitch to a client here in Australia, it's like, okay, well, thank you. But now we've got to go through Singapore or Hong Kong, and then that goes to Milan and Paris. So um, the proximity to the actually head offices and the luxury to just actually walk in to the head offices of Hermes or Gucci, et cetera, and have conversations straight with, I guess, the people that were making the decisions was the big thing. So I think that was obviously amazing experience. And just to see inside those the worlds of luxury was just incredible. Um, um, and I think probably because, um, you know, Europe is such a, an established market, they, they trust um, publishers to work with them a little bit more. So you can do, you know, more outrageous or more courageous promotions because, um, you've got all the best talent at your hand. So often what we, what I saw is like, you know, a lot of the talent that was working for publishers were also working for the luxury brands doing their ad campaigns. So you're able to tap into a network of trust. Uh, and so, you know, the luxury brands, you know, trusted, um, you know, someone like Bureau to actually do something really quite innovative for them. Yeah. Um, now, your role's pretty different now. Yeah. That you're back yes. in Australia. Uh, it's more sort of content yeah. focused again. Yeah, uh, good exactly. to see you back in the content yeah. uh, space more directly. Um, for you working at Medium Rare now, what is, what is the, I guess, the most important thing that, yeah. that Medium Rare and you and the team yeah. are sort of bringing to, to the brands, the clients exactly. that, that you work with yeah. right now? Um, good point. So obviously, you know, the reason I'm here is because the, the company has expanded um, so quickly. So I think we were saying at the beginning, maybe, you know, Medium Rare has gone from a handful of employees to over 200 um, working with brands such as Qantas, Bunnings, uh, Coles, Australian Institute of Company Directors, uh, etc. Officeworks, you know, amazing big retail brands who over the last seven years have invested in content themselves. So I guess when we started Medium Rare, it was like we sort of had that sort of positioning or that vision to help brands become publishers. Now they are, they own their own audiences, their own social channels, their own YouTubes, you know, they're doing podcasts. So my role is really to keep that innovation of content um, being delivered to clients. So I guess at the moment, you know, we're looking at the TikTok platform. So in Australia, that's got sort of uh, legitimacy in terms of the audience, but also brands are sort of validated, like sort of activating on there. So our role is really to um, drive content that delivers results. So we've got a, big, a lot of big retail clients like Officeworks and Coles that has to move product. So we've got to make sure that content, whether it's in print or digital, et cetera, does that. And I think, you know, medium rare's positioning is that um, our content, I guess, is probably the most insightful content. So yes, there's that ability to um, be creative in there, but really we root everything in insight. So before we even write a story, whether that's in print or digital, you know, we do the SEO um, insights. We look at macro trends across the globe and locally um, to see what the consumer mindset should be at a particular time. Uh, and then I think what we do is we help clients be able to deliver on their business objectives. So if I look at Coles, for example, in any one month, you know, they've gotten so many messages to tell their consumers. Yes, it's to move, I guess, Christmas food, but then there's also the sustainability message. There's a community message. There might be a promotion that they've got to talk about as well. So it's so complex now and there's only, a, a, I guess, a finite amount of channels that they can actually talk to their consumers. So part of our work really every month is not just the end result of the content, it's that strategy and saying, when are we going to talk to the consumer about this topic and how are we going to talk about it and what format? So, um, you know, the beautiful thing that I've seen at Medium Rare is that content um, is really now, I guess, um, front and centre. So, you know, when we're in a meeting uh, with one of our clients, the ad agency will be there, the media agency will be there, the PR agency will be there. So content has really got a seat at the table and it's very important in the mix. Um, so for, for me, I guess it's here, um, you know, now that the, the, the business has grown to such an extent, you know, I'm here to actually drive innovation for our existing clients. 
then obviously if there's a ticket on my head, I've got to find new clients as well. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Um, speaking of, of pressure though, you brought up some very interesting points just then about communicating with consumers yeah. and you're advising essentially and producing on, yeah. on behalf of your clients, obviously yeah. with them and, and their other agency yeah. partners involved. Yeah. But Part of what we've seen over the last 18 months through the pandemic is a shift in consumer behaviour, uh, in yeah. consumer spend, which in Australia yeah. is still in most sectors quite strong, yeah. but the way we've done it has shifted. Mm. What have your biggest mm. takeouts been? What are you advising your clients yeah. to, to do now and to, to yeah. change because of that? Yeah, and I think um, we just, when I started, we, we sort of went into market to actually find out, you know, what are, the, what are consumers or what are Australians thinking about brands doing content? I think it was well known that content played a role in that consideration phase. So, you know, when um, a consumer discovers a brand or service or product, you know, they take some time evaluating and looking through the market and, and doing that comparison. We went into market and actually found out that content is playing a bigger role because of these macro trends that have sort of accelerated during COVID. So, you know, at one end, you've got the see binge economy. So someone can spend all weekend looking at a device but not really seeing an ad. Um, at, and then, you know, there's that sort of age of antitrust that, you know, there, there's sort of this distrust in government and institutions. So consumers looking to brands for information or they're going underground to seek their information. Um, then there's obviously the new novelties like TikTok, like Instagram, they're content platforms. So in some respects, content um, or the demand for content is through these macro trends. And so when you understand that and you go a bit deep and you ask the consumer, you know, about content and they can specifically say, oh, I go to Priceline for this. I know Coles does that. I, know, I love Woolies recipes. It's like my mum and dad. They're really using content in all the way through their purchase journey or their, their, their I guess, experience with the brand. So awareness is now as important as advertising, I think. Um, sorry, content plays a really important role in awareness as does advertising. And then all the way through what we sort of see, particularly for those big retail brands, if you're doing it really well, consistently, and it's premium, you can lock your consumer into your ecosystem. So obviously when price and promotion and retail is so competitive, you've got a really compelling um, content ecosystem that draws people in, helps them go speedily through that consideration process. You're going to get them to buy or like or follow you, but then they'll keep going by, I guess, looking forward to your content. So really, I guess what we're, you know, part of my role is also to educate new clients and also clients that have invested in it over the last four years ago. Actually, this is the power of what you're doing. So you may not be there yet. You may not have the scale of, say, an Officeworks or a Coles or, or a Qantas. You know, they've been doing it for many years, but if you start... Um, start by growing your own audiences because I think it's something that I learned at Vogue and GQ, you know, when you grow your own audiences on social and digital, you can then mobilise your audiences to do something. And that's why we were so successful with, say, Vogue Fashion's Night Out or GQ Men of the Year because we could rally our troops to actually go and do something for us. So that's, I guess, using my experience in consumer to talk to clients to go, listen, the most important thing of the content is that you're growing your own audience and your engaged audience and you can get your consumers to go and do something. Yeah, 100%. And like you said before, you're doing your own research, medium res, doing yeah. the same research, yeah. but um, you know, I assume in this age of uh, first-party data, big data and big yeah. tech platforms, there's yeah. probably a lot that the brands can you know, show exactly. you as well that you yeah. can start to, to yeah. digest. How important is yeah. that in the relationship? Really, really important. And, um, and I think... You know, in some respects, what we've had to move from being sort of that service that will help you become a publisher is really become like an extension of your marketing department. So in that respect, we've actually leaned in more in terms of those old school things, which I'm good at, is like driving relationships, you know, finding out who in organisations has the knowledge um, and collaborating more with clients. So it's more... it's less of a service now it's more of a collaboration so you know the insights that we can get from the client where it's whether it's anecdotal whether it's from the crm or whether it's for the, from their um you know customer service team to their data is what helps us do a better job and is it more is it 
easy to get that or is it more fragmented now? One of the things yeah. we keep following yeah. is who owns what information yeah. and how do we get it and how do brands actually digest mm. it because there is so much going yeah. on. Yeah. How do you find that working with clients? Is it, you know, are you using, are you leveraging your ability to ah, go to everyone? <laughs> there's probably some more work to do. And, and you know, when you, you're starting to work with big organizations, there's so many departments internally. I mean, any media or advertising agency would know that. So it's the same for us. You know, the good thing is with most of our clients, we do have, I guess, a either a marketing team or a content team to go to so they can be our funnel to get more information from the rest of the organization. But listen, it's a slow build to get to that sort of uh, utopia of having full access to all the data. So, um, you know, and also, you know, technology needs to be implemented like, you know, AI or personalization in content. It's not there for a lot of brands yet, but it will be. So we're starting to talk to a few brands about that. So, I guess, you know, having a, a more of a partnership or a collaboration with brands that we can either test and learn, and a lot of brands are open to that now, or we can be their partner on the journey to that, as I say, utopia of getting to understand, you know, the good thing about data at the moment, um, well, the way we use it, is we can be informed pretty much, you know, the content that worked last year is, is you know, the same that's going to be searched for this year. What we probably can't tell is, I guess, you know, what they're wanting to search tomorrow, right? You know what I mean? How dare you not be able to tell the future? <laughs> Love to be able to, but that's where we need tech to help us. So let's actually stay on the, the future discussion at the moment yeah. in terms of, you mentioned getting the seat at the table yeah. previously, which yeah. is good to hear. Yeah. Uh, also though, it throws up some interesting questions. And again, it's something that, that Umbrella has been following for, for quite a while in terms of, uh, the, the old boundaries, if you will, of creative agencies, media buyers, PR agencies are sort yeah. of dissolving and, and each are kind of spreading their wings in, into each other's, you know, yeah. what was traditionally each other's business. Yeah. Now, medium rare, you know, as we were sort of speaking about before we started yeah. recording it, yeah. traditionally you're going, oh, medium rare, aren't they just like a, a content marketing yeah. sort yeah. of yeah. Uh, business? Yeah. And it's not really that anymore. It's a lot more than that. How do you find that relationship with other agencies and, and where, I guess, your work starts yeah. and, and yeah. stops and theirs starts and stops? And yeah. How does that work? Look, the lines are blurring, definitely. And, you know, if I look at ad agencies, you know, they're launching content divisions. Um, we're trying to move more into that creative territory. So I think probably something that uh, the team and I worked on this year with Jerry and Sally is like, let's move to an agency response sort of model. So as I mentioned before, we, you know, we're replying to um, campaign briefs, et cetera, um, via content. But then if you look at the work we're doing for David Jones, you know, um, Justine uh, and the team are almost setting like a creative vision um, each, uh, each season for David Jones and that creative vision or territory gets taken above the line or into window displays or in-store um, experiential kind of activations. And we're okay with that, <laughs> you know. I don't mind encroaching. Um, I guess, you know, you know, I'm going to probably get more and more people coming to do content because, you know, brands are wanting it. So I guess we just need to be we're cognizant of that and listen again with our clients we are really saying, listen, we'll not only collaborate with you, but we'll collaborate with the other agencies as well. And, and listen, the clients are demanding that as well. So clients are saying, listen, you guys work it out, right? There is a place for content within a part of a campaign, maybe not for everything. You know, sometimes if there's a new message, say around sustainability, that needs a big broadcast um, campaign, which is in above the line, TBC, et cetera. You know, people starting to search that for content, but you're really going to need an above-the-line campaign to really land that message. We can start um, doing, you know, ongoing, always-on community stories and, and sort of seeding what brands are doing in that territory, but you're going to have to work hand-in-hand -hand with above-the-line. So um, we actually now, for, for a lot of brands, really ask our clients to say, listen, we're happy to have, you know, weekly whips or collaborations with the other agencies because it makes the job easier for the client. Now I'll finish on well I'll finish on two things, uh, but I'll, I'll have to sneak this in because of all the talk about the great resignation and all that <laughs> sort of nonsense, um, which I've made my points of view quite clear on in, in the, the best of the weekend. But it's not about me; it's about you for this uh, podcast. Uh, Nick, you mentioned the the expansion of of medium rare and going into different areas uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. 
how hard is it for you guys at the moment to hire not just content but potentially other areas which you might not be as well known for yes. right now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> listen, I think um, I think every agency is now. I guess I think they're now open to the fact that actually the employee is leading what the engagement is. So, you know, medium res. You know, we've moved into this new beautiful sustainable office in in Piedmont next to Publicis. Um, we've moved to flexible working arrangements. So, you know, you can work three days in the office and two days at home, as long as that's approved. Do you actually just get lost on the Publicis level? It's <laughs> having to sneak around. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, these this day, you know, that's what, you know, people have lived two years within this pandemic, or I know I have, where it's like, well, listen, you've got to work with the talent um, and you've got to keep them comfortable. And, you know, people in this now, you know, want to stay at home because it's like an hour less travel. And, and there's those kind of things where in the past I would have probably gone myself. It's like, no, I want my people here. I want them all on the floor. I like to walk the floor and have that communication. But it's like, well, that's me. It's not the staff. So if they feel more supported uh, or have more choice within the way they want to work, or so be it. And listen, we've started to you know hire um, remote people. So we you know we've got a sound designer who's in Byron Bay. Um, you know our, our podcast producer has just moved to Adelaide. So um, you know you can you can do our sort of work from wherever. Um, and especially as we expand more around the country and to say New Zealand or even Singapore, we're going to have. Um, I guess, a global workforce. And I think that's something I learned from from Bureau long before the pandemic. I was doing Zoom calls with the team in, in Singapore and then Serbia and at weird times. So I kind of had adjusted to that way of working more globally. And so I think um, it's only a good thing, really. And I, I will, I promise this is the last question um, and I'll, I'll leave you on this, but um, having group CEO on your CV is, yeah. is a pretty impressive uh, title and I think yeah. some may say a little bit um, you get to you get used to it in a sense you get used <laughs> yeah. to, to that in a sense so is this question about me having to roll up my sleeves <laughs> not at all I see you have rolled up your sleeves literally you are ready for the work but will will we ever see you again? Maybe in a CEO type role? Are you have you closed the door on that, or is it still open in the future? Um, oh, listen, I definitely love that. I noticed um, maybe Red doesn't have a CEO. Oh. At the, no, I'm just saying, just uh, to, right. just something I noticed. But, okay, uh, look, uh, no, uh, nothing to talk about. There, no. um, yeah, obviously, look, one day that would be that would be amazing, right? Um, look, it gave me a fantastic experience. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you also do have the, the weight of the whole entire organisation and the shareholders on, on your shoulders when you do that. So, you know, this role has been quite um, fantastic and a gift because I've begun to sort of come back to Australia, almost, you know, get back into that same tribe uh, that I was before in terms of, you know, working with talented people. Um, I'm really happy driving, I guess, innovation um, in the content um, division of, of Medium Rare and, and, and we're growing. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy at the moment. <laughs> That's a diplomatic answer. Good, good, good answer, very diplomatic. Well, well uh, group Content Director for Medium Rare Content Agency, Nick Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks, Damien, it's been great. And that's a wrap for this week. Please make sure you subscribe to the Mumbrella Cast on whatever your favourite podcast platform happens to be. Emma, Callum, Anna, thank you so much for joining us again on the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Thank you.